Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Natana Lipschitz. With us today is Bob Simpson, lecturer in philosophy at Monash University and visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago. And he's here to discuss genealogical anxiety. Bob Simpson, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So genealogy is a term that a lot of contemporary philosophers borrow from the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. What are they talking about when they talk about genealogy? Are they talking about like genetics and evolution or something? Or what does that term mean? Well, in the context of the sort of things that I'm interested in talking about today, genealogy is just referring to the causal backstory of how you came to believe the various things that you believe or how you came to have the sorts of commitments and practices that you endorse. Uh, So you might have inherited them from your culture, you might have inherited them from your family or from your education, or you might have inherited them from some very general features about the kinds of creatures that we are and the sorts of commitments that creatures like us tend to have. And then this idea of genealogical anxiety, uh, this is a term that's coined by Amir Srinivasan, to refer to the anxiety that happens when you reflect upon the genealogy of your belief. So you think about the fact that, in a sense, it's just a complete accident that you were born into the country that you were born, or the family that you were born, or the community that you were born. If you were born into a different country, or community, or family, chances are you would have had very different beliefs about a whole lot of questions, very different moral commitments, and reflecting on this accident can trigger a sort of anxiety, a feeling of unsureness or skepticism or suspicion about the credibility of these beliefs and commitments. Right, okay, so for example, I grew up in New Jersey, in the New York metropolitan area, and just statistically, most people who grow up in that area are not super worried about the right to bear arms. Perhaps that raises the question, is it just because I'm from New Jersey that I don't really care that much about the Second Amendment? Or is there really something to my belief? Yeah, and you would think about the person who grew up in, I don't know, Alabama, and the fact that they do have this very strong belief in the right to bear arms, and they would think, in a way, a thought that's symmetrical. They know that if they were brought up in New Jersey or uh, Boston, the likelihood is that they would have beliefs that are much more typical for people who live in sort of middle-class urban communities. So both of you are in the same position of thinking, it's just an accident that I have the beliefs about this question that I do. And if I think that it's just an accident, does it actually make sense for me to hold on to those beliefs or to be as confident in those beliefs as I was before? Yeah, so um, I think just if we think about the term brainwashing or indoctrinated, they tend to have this um, negative connotation. and which seems to suggest that when we are just caused to believe in a brainwashy way or indoctrinating way, then we believe it um, not for a good reason. So maybe we should not believe it. 
Um, that's how we seem to use it in our day-to-day conversations. In Nietzsche himself, the idea of genealogy came as a critical idea. The thought was that if he can show us the history of some of our most deeply held beliefs, we will come to see that they don't track anything real about reality. And this is still used to these days. I mean, if you think about, for example, feminist critiques of gender roles, uh, often what they show us is how uh, the ways we think about masculinity and femininity, for example, where, I mean, they want us to reconsider our conception of gender roles by noticing that they are historically given to us. So, in a sense, they want to show us the genealogy of those gender roles. Yeah, so I think that's right. I think the way that Nietzsche thought about genealogy is something that is supposed to undermine or loosen the grip that our beliefs have upon us is the way that most of us naively think about genealogical questions today. We say to each other things like, you only believe in gun rights because you were raised in Alabama, or you only believe that Jesus is the son of God because you went to Sunday school. Or if we're feminist, we say, you only believe in the naturalness of these forms of sexual relations with men being the ones who go out into the public space and work and women being the ones who stay at home and care about children. You only believe all that because you were raised in a society that buys into certain kinds of patriarchal forms of social organisation. And in each case, the force of the challenge is to try and unsettle us and make us doubt the credibility of what we believe by seeing, as we were saying before, that it is in a certain sense just an accident that we believe that. And so in a sense, I mean, uh, we encounter cultural relativism in classrooms. I think all of us teach philosophy and we uh, hear many students um, pronounce culturally relativistic views or the view that every ethical system is um, culturally relative. And I think that view itself can be explained by the thought that if we are caused or indoctrinated or even brainwashed to believe what we believe, then different people who are situated in different social contexts will believe different things. So, Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the attraction towards some sort of relativistic viewpoint um, that's common amongst most of the students that I teach in my philosophy classes definitely owes something to their work, this kind of genealogical anxiety that we're talking about. Once students have grappled a little bit with this thought that it's an accident that I believe what I believe and it's an accident that you believe what you believe, they start to have some more flimsy attachment to their beliefs. There's a sense in which they still believe it and they might still live their lives in accordance with that belief, but when any pressure is placed on them to, to, to assert the objectivity of what it is that they're committed to, the inclination is to say, well, all of us are entitled to believe whatever we want. No particular belief system should be rationally or morally privileged over the other. So this, the force of genealogical anxiety that Nietzsche attributed to it as something that should unsettle us in our commitments to what we believe is, yeah, as I said before, is a, a common way of thinking about what the significance of these considerations ultimately amounts to. So this leads really to global skepticism, because it's very tempting at this point to despair of the very possibility of going outside of the context that determined all of what I believe in, and really examine things as they are. And I think what we get from our skeptic students often is this kind of skepticism. I think that's right. And so um, 
one of the first things we have to do in trying to get to the bottom of what's the significance of this genealogical anxiety is to move past that initial feeling of doubt and suspicion and uncertainty that gets triggered when we think about the accidental nature of what we believe to recognize that sometimes, even if it's merely an accident that you came to believe this particular thing, you might have accidentally stumbled upon the truth. So here's an example that illustrates this. Suppose that you're a great lover of spaghetti and you're lying in bed at night at 11 o'clock and you think, gosh, I could really go for some spaghetti right now. So even though it's really late at night, you get dressed and you go out onto the street and you go down to the store, you don't even know if the store's open. You're just so desperate that you're willing to take a punt. And you get down there and you find that the store closes at midnight. So you're in luck, you can still get some spaghetti. But you, prior to this, you had no idea what time the store was closing. Now, there's a sense in which the only reason that you know that the store closes at midnight is because you love spaghetti. Is the fact that you love spaghetti a good reason for you to believe that the store closes at midnight? Of course not. It's just part of this accidental causal history that you have that led you to go out onto the street and acquire some evidence. But the fact that you acquired that evidence due to this chancy, fluky fact about your taste for spaghetti in no way undermines the reasonableness of you believing that the store closes at midnight. It was an accident that you ever encountered the evidence that led you to believe that. But having encountered that evidence, you've actually got very good reasons for believing as you do. Now, this example is given by uh, an author named Andreas Mogensen in a paper that he's recently written on this topic. And really what he's trying to do with this example and a couple of others that he gives is to make a move back in the opposite direction against that initial Nietzschean thought that we were talking about. We think, oh, it's just an accident that I believe that I believe what I believe. Doesn't that undermine my confidence in the things that I believe? Well, sometimes you can accidentally come into believing things that you ought to believe, things that there are good reasons to believe. So the mere fact of it being an accident shouldn't all by itself completely disrupt your confidence. Otherwise, as, as you pointed out, Netanel, the implication is going to be, we're not justified in believing any of the things we believe, because ultimately all of these things we just came upon by accident. And the history of science seems to be full of those cases of accidental hitting upon truths, very important truths and discoveries. That's obviously right. So it would be a mistake, it seems, when we have this genealogical anxiety to infer from the fact that it's an accident that I believe what I believe, that I therefore ought not to believe it. Maybe I need to do some fresh thinking about the topic that's under consideration. Maybe I have to re-examine my reasons, but just giving up on a belief or just abandoning any confidence that I have in a belief upon finding out that it's an accident that I believe it or reflecting on the fact that it's an accident, that seems like an overreaction. Now this topic, the things that uh, philosophers who've been thinking about this and writing about this lately have started to converge upon is something like that thought. When we have genealogical anxiety, what various authors say, including Roger White and uh, Mogensen, who I mentioned before, and Miriam Schoenfield, they think that what we ought to do is just take this as an invitation or a prompt to re-examine our reasons for thinking the things that we do. So if someone says to me, you just believe that because you're a liberal urban city type, you just believe that guns are bad because you were raised uh, in the suburbs or you just believe that guns are bad because you were raised in Australia, one of these countries where they don't have 
gun rights. These authors that I mentioned, what they think I need to do is take that challenge as an invitation to think about, well, what are the arguments in favour of gun control? Does the fact that seemingly intelligent, thoughtful people in the United States have a different viewpoint than I do about how and why and under what circumstances guns should be available, does that fact about disagreement represent a challenge to my belief? Should reflecting on that somehow reduce my confidence in my commitments? Uh, facing this challenge of someone saying, you just believe that because you were raised in this community, that might force me to reflect upon what are my standards of reasoning? What are my standards of evidence? And has my belief about this particular question been arrived at in a way that's consistent with my standards of evidence? Or have I been sloppy and careless in arriving at that belief? So for all of these authors, genealogical anxiety doesn't have any direct implications for the rationality of my beliefs or the justification of my beliefs. What it has is some sort of indirect implication. It's a prompt or an invitation to reconsider all of these other factors and to think very hard and very carefully about whether the belief that I had in the first place is one that stands up to that sort of scrutiny. So that's an interesting idea. Um, and we might want to come back to that, this idea that these arguments about maybe the real reason I believe something is because I grew up in a certain place or because uh, a lot of people told me certain things when I was young. Maybe that fact can be an invitation to reconsider why I really believe things X, Y, and Z. But I'm still having a little trouble with the idea that, you know, these stories about where our beliefs come from should have any influence on what we believe. I mean, look, at a certain level, I believe that the Earth is roughly spherical because I went to school and they told me that at school. But, like, that shouldn't make me think, oh, well, the Earth's not really spherical, should it? Right. So... We do need to distinguish between different kinds of causal backstories. When you think about the fact that it's an accident that you believe what you believe, sometimes the accident is one that you can recognize after the fact as a happy accident. So think of the example I gave from Mogensen before. It's a happy accident that although it's you know, a completely fluky thing that you happen to love spaghetti, in this occasion, your love of spaghetti brought you into the sphere of some information that gave you a, a useful belief that's just being responsive to evidence. Some of us had the good fortune to be raised in societies and at an historical moment where our education about matters like geology and biology and chemistry and physics was informed by uh, a really well-functioning system of information acquisition and synthesis and digestion and dissemination. So we can acquire lots of true beliefs about how the world works and how physical systems work, just by having the good fortune of going to a particular school. And when we reflect upon that, we can see, yeah, it's kind of an accident that I was born in this historical moment in a culture that has a good education system and where the sciences are currently dictating the shape of the curriculum. However, seeing all of those things as accidental doesn't undermine my belief in them because I have very good independent reasons to think that these are among the very best ways to acquire beliefs about things. On the other hand, if I reflect on my beliefs about matters of religion, suppose that I was raised as a Christian and that my best friend was raised as a Hindu. I can look at their religious education and my religious education and see that actually we had a lot of things in common. 
there's no obvious factors about the structure of the communities that we were in and how they imparted their beliefs to us that differentiates one or the other of them as being a good way to acquire one's beliefs about questions of spirituality and the fundamental nature of existence or a bad way to acquire beliefs about those things. They look like they're really fluky, chancy ways to acquire your beliefs about those sorts of questions. So the general thought about um, genealogical anxiety can't be the mere fact of, of accidentality entails that you should become less confident or that you even have a any kind of a reason to become less confident. When you think about the causal backstory for your beliefs, some kinds of backstories tend to vindicate what you believe. Other kinds of backstories seem to suggest that it's a completely fluky, irrelevant set of circumstances that led you to believe what you do believe. In what you said, you mentioned that um, sometimes I have an independent reason to believe what I believe or that I have a happy accident. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question that um, arises at this point is how can I know that my accident is a happy one? How can I ever have an independent reason? I mean, independent of what? Can it be independent completely of the context in which I grew up? And I think for many people that question is especially urgent when it comes to moral issues. Um, what should I do? Because how can I ever think about those questions independently of, you know, what I've been taught I ought to do? So this is a really good question, and it's a question for which there aren't very many easy answers. When you're trying to think about whether you have any good independent reason for believing what you do, independent there seems to mean independent of all these beliefs that you're calling into question. And you might reflect on why you believe what you do and think, yeah, I've got good reasons for believing it, but then at the same time sort of know that you only think that because you're already immersed in that worldview. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes when you reflect upon your reasons for believing as you do, by your own lights, you doubt the quality of the reasons that you have. You see them as completely chancy, completely fluky, completely susceptible to you know, the people that you happen to be educated by. And it's when you're feeling that sense of uncertainty by your own lights about the quality of your reasons for believing what you do that genealogical anxiety really gets a grip on you. So it looks like part of the hope that we can perhaps have for assessing our own sets of beliefs comes from the fact that we don't get from our culture only a set of beliefs with a certain content, but we also get forms of assessment of those beliefs. And they are quite unpredictable. They can be quite creative. If we use them, we can go beyond what we were taught in terms of a set of a certain belief and come into forming new beliefs. So it looks like um, part of the hope, at least, comes from the fact that we, we have a way of criticizing our own thoughts. So I agree with what you're saying there. And I think that reflecting on the way in which we're supplied with critical resources for interrogating our own beliefs is actually a really important consideration when it comes to thinking about what we should do with our genealogical anxiety. So I mentioned before that a number of authors uh, working on this topic have converged on saying something like this, that when you have genealogical anxiety, it doesn't have any direct implications upon the rationality or justification for believing what you do, but it functions as an indirect prompt to reconsider your reasons. Now, some people, when they try to reconsider their reasons, get nowhere. They're fated to get nowhere at all because their whole capacity to think critically about the contents of their belief system has been subverted from the outset. 
So here's an example. Suppose you're indoctrinated into a religious belief system that tells you that even questioning the uh, sacred truthfulness of the tenets of your faith is an egregious sin for which you're liable to be punished in the afterlife. Now this would be a, a particularly extreme version of uh, religion. Mainstream um, forms of Christian theism or Islamic theism of course don't teach this. But let's just imagine someone who is indoctrinated into that extreme version of that belief system. It's extraordinarily difficult for that person to think critically about the belief system. When they're having genealogical anxiety, the authors that I mentioned before say that genealogical anxiety is an invitation to think critically. But this person has no capacity to think critically. They might not even have any capacity to recognize that they lack the capacity to think critically, depending on how powerfully and profoundly their critical abilities have been subverted. Contrast that person with a person who has similarly been educated into a belief system, but where their education has consistently been supplying them with critical resources that enable them to question what they believe, to doubt what they believe, to think seriously about evidence or arguments that count against the things that they believe. When this person is faced with genealogical anxiety and they're attempting to do what the authors in the literature say they should do, think about their standards of reasoning, think about the arguments, think about whether other people disagree with them and what the significance of that is, someone in this second case is able to do that. And they can feel at least some little degree of faith in their own capacity to make some progress. You might, in reflecting upon the arguments and the other factors that count for or against your belief, actually change your mind about some things. And the fact that you have the resources, the critical ability to interrogate your own beliefs and then change your mind actually gives you some sense of confidence in the integrity of the whole process, right? So this question of genealogical anxiety and the way that it functions as a trigger for reinvestigations or reevaluations of your belief system plays out differently for different people depending on what sort of a process of belief acquisition they had in the first place. Okay, so this view that we've been discussing, the take a moment to reconsider it view, mm -hmm. according to that picture, if I come to recognize that my belief in something can in some sense be explained by the fact that I came from a certain place and I was raised in a certain way, coming to realize that should be viewed as an occasion to reconsider my belief. Right? It's an occasion to revisit, wait a minute, it, do I really believe in that because there's actual evidence for it? Or do I just believe in it because I was, as it were, brainwashed? Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of reopens that question. That's the significance of pointing out that I have this belief because of where I grew up and who told me what when I was young. Mm -hmm. That might potentially seem a little bit unsatisfying because like, shouldn't we always be questioning what our reasons for believing things are? Like, isn't any belief we have always open to doubt and like re-examination? Isn't that kind of the whole point? Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And what you're doing there, I think, is challenging the, the interpretation of this issue that's emerging in the literature with these people saying that thinking about genealogical anxiety is just an indirect pointer towards thinking about generic aims that you should have in trying to be a conscientious and careful reasoner or believer. If that's all that follows from genealogical anxiety, then genealogical anxiety is not very interesting. It's kind of just redundant because as you rightly point out, uh, 
this should be part of our aims as a believer or a conscientious thinker at all times. So what uh, I and someone I'm working with on these questions, Josh DiPaolo, are wanting to suggest is that there is something more going on in genealogical anxiety. And particularly in these kinds of challenges that we've talked about where you say to someone, you only believe in gun rights because you were born in Alabama, or you only believe in Jesus because you were raised in a Christian household. And we think that the more interesting thing that's going on in these challenges is specifically to do with these ideas of brainwashing or indoctrination that we've been talking about. So when you examine the causal backstory for your beliefs, you don't merely think about the fact that you happen to be born in a particular community or that you happen to go to school in a particular place. You also think about the specific things that happened in that community or in that place, the specific educational practices that were used to impart beliefs into yourself and others. So to, for, to draw a few rough and ready distinctions, we all know that repetition is part of education. When you're learning your times tables or if you're learning the periodic table of elements, part of how you memorize these things is by just having certain facts or numbers repeated over and over until you can just rote memorize them. But sometimes people are subjected to educational methods that involve needless repetition, where particular ideas are drilled into them day in, day out, far beyond the point where it's necessary for their memory. Right? So certain forms of religious and political indoctrination work this way. Ideas are repeated ad nauseum until they just become almost axiomatic thoughts that everyone knows to recite as a matter of course. So there's one thing, you might reflect upon how you were educated and think, gosh, there was a lot of needless, gratuitous repetition, far more repetition than was necessary for me and other people I went to school with to remember the claims that were being advanced. Another kind of salient contrast would be the contrast between educational methods that involved humiliating or shaming people who said the wrong thing, as opposed to encouraging people who offered opinions or questions or criticisms that deviated from what the teacher was trying to impart. So when you reflect upon your education, if you think, gosh, anytime people ask critical questions, they were really berated. They were hung out to dry. Compare that with another person who's, when they reflect on their education, thinks, you know, we were told to believe these things, but when people questioned what we were being taught, they weren't berated or hung out to dry. They were encouraged and they were given answers and they were persuaded rather than bullied. There's all these specific educational practices that we think really make a huge difference when you're figuring out what ought I to do with my genealogical anxiety? Should this somehow move me to change my beliefs about things? Or is this just a generic invitation to think again about why I believe what I believe. And in particular, um, the thing that we really want to emphasize is how being subjected to these methods of indoctrination, as we call them, can really subvert your capacity to think critically about your own beliefs. So we think that all of these considerations about indoctrination really matter when you're trying to think critically about your own beliefs. Suppose I'm trying to see whether I've evaluated the evidence that's out there with respect to the question of should we have robust gun rights or not? 
So I'm looking at all the arguments that the NRA publishes. I'm looking at all the arguments that the liberals and progressives who are opposed to the NRA are publishing. And I'm just trying to judge, are these arguments sound? Do they appeal to true premises? Do they make valid inferences? If when I reflect on my own education, I think, you know, the way I got to having my beliefs about this question was one that involved a whole lot of gratuitous repetition, a whole lot of bullying and mental cajoling and psychological manipulation, then I should be really doubtful about my capacity to evaluate those arguments well, because I know that my whole ability to think about this question has kind of been messed with right at the foundations. Now, what should I believe about the substantive question in response to that? It's really hard to say. I shouldn't trust my own judgment because I know that my own judgment has been, as I said, subverted or messed with. But what I certainly shouldn't do in that situation, so it seems to me, is just carry on thinking, well, you know, I re-examined the arguments and the arguments tend to confirm what I thought all along. I should be much less credulous about the outputs of my own reflective judgments if I think that my whole capacity to reflect and to make judgments has been subverted via these processes of indoctrination. So I think a lot of this perhaps turns on what the explanation for clusters of beliefs is. Like, what's the real reason that beliefs cluster in certain, for example, geographic regions or Mm. among certain demographics? Mm. And I wonder, like, maybe this is just a question we have to put to sociology or something, but is the main reason that certain political beliefs cluster in certain geographical regions primarily because of indoctrination? Or is it just more like, look, there are just default preferences and you know we're less likely to question the default, but there's no like indoctrination happening. I just sort of wonder like um, does this account of what's potentially interesting about genealogical arguments turn on any particular story about what the source of these clusterings of beliefs is? So I don't think that it does depend on any particular sociological account of why it is that in our world beliefs tend to cluster. There could be a bunch of different explanations or a a whole lot of different complementary analyses as to why beliefs cluster in the way that they do. The question is about what any given individual should think when they, even when they recognize that their own beliefs have these practices of indoctrination there in the background. So suppose the sociologists tell us, look, the main reason why beliefs cluster in the way that they do is just because um, people trust their parents. That's a sort of a deeply ingrained psychological process. And trusting one's parents in and of itself is not a particularly bad thing. It's probably all things considered a good way to find out about how the world is, even though it can sometimes lead you astray. Even if that's what the sociologists tell us about why it is the beliefs cluster, the person who, when they reflect on their own education, and they sort of excavate their memory and they talk to people who they went to school with or who they went to church with or whatever, if they come to think, gosh, there were all these techniques being used that were making it really, really hard for me to change my mind about things, to think critically about things, to take seriously evidence that went against the dominant narrative that I was inculcated into. The person who comes to think all of those things about their own educational experience doesn't really get any comfort from the sociologist's explanation as to why beliefs cluster in general, because that explanation could be true for the general run of cases, but 
in one's own case, one can't help but suspect that that wasn't the only thing that was at work. That maybe I acquired my beliefs in part because that's what my parents told me and we're all somewhat disposed to believe what our parents tell us. But it became very, very difficult for me to ever believe anything different once all of these educational methods were used on me that subverted my capacity for critical reflection. So ultimately this claim about how we ought to respond to genealogical anxiety and what its general significance might be, we are hoping, myself and, and De Paolo, who I'm working on these things with, we're minded to think that it's not committed to any general account as to why beliefs cluster in the way that they do. This question might follow up on uh, Matt's question. Um, it looks like your view is focused on pernicious educational system and pernicious cultural practices. Um, and that's very helpful. Uh, but it seems like some of the genealogical arguments that bother philosophers the most don't go to culture at all, but go to evolutionary forces. Right. And in, when it comes to evolutionary forces, and for example, the way evolution shaped our moral beliefs, it seems strange to say that evolution interferes with the way I reason, um, or that evolution um, brainwashed me in any way. Mm. Um, what is your attitude towards those kind of genealogical anxieties? Yeah, so the view that we're taking on this question about indoctrination doesn't have any direct implications for the case that you're gesturing towards where we might doubt the credibility of our moral judgments because we think for instance we only have the patterns of concern and altruism for others that we do because of some sort of evolutionary advantage that was conferred on our species by having those practices. So some people um, as you know think that the upshot of that is that we should doubt all of our moral judgments. Other people think that there is a way to rehabilitate confidence in our moral judgments. Um, ultimately, I think whatever your answer to that question is, these concerns about indoctrination are going to be triggered one way or the other. If you think that the evolutionary origins of our moral beliefs discredit them, then you won't be surprised if you also think that the um, contingent social origins of our beliefs about religion or politics discredit those beliefs. But suppose you think that the evolutionary origins of our moral judgments don't discredit those moral judgments. It's perfectly consistent with that to think that being the subject of indoctrination in a religious community or in a political community does discredit the beliefs that are a product of that indoctrination. Simply because evolution is, um, as people sometimes say, a kind of aimless or blind process. Whereas indoctrination is not aimless, it's strategic, it's tactical, it has a very clearly designed purpose um, and its practitioners are behaving in the service of that purpose. And it's that kind of pernicious purposiveness of indoctrination that makes it such a source of anxiety and that gives us a reason to become doubtful about the beliefs that are a product of that. And none of that stuff is involved in the sort of more generic evolutionary case. Um. Bob Simpson, this was an incredibly stimulating interview, and I'm pretty sure I believe that not just because I was indoctrinated too. Thank <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. Thanks, FNL. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod, And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. 
On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.